0: Know Your Dealer has been a drug culture safety standard forever. As cannabis migrates towards whatever potential legalization the future holds, one of the few but important advantages of the licensed cannabis market is the availability of analytics. It is very helpful to know which cannabinoids are dominant in cannabis products, how potent they are, what terpenes are present, and that they are devoid of dangerous pesticides, molds, and heavy metals. This is a modern equivalent of Know Your Dealer. We could do a whole episode on gaming cannabis analytics to cheat, but on the whole, having cannabis analytics available to us is an important modern win for cannabis patients and enthusiasts alike. Psychedelic mushrooms are following in the footsteps of cannabis in so many ways. And because cannabis has already laid the groundwork for mushroom legalization, many states are rushing to develop legal frameworks, healthcare standards, and manufacturing rules. Similarly, we have begun to recognize the importance of analytical labs for mushrooms too. All mushrooms are not created equal, and as patients, enthusiasts, and product developers all have increased access to psilocybin mushrooms, the importance of knowing what we are ingesting becomes hugely important. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter, so go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Dr. George Selhorn. George Selhorn, Ph.D., is founder and principal scientist at Flourish Labs in Portland, Oregon. Flourish is one of the first labs in the U.S. to provide analysis of psilocybin mushrooms. He has also been lab director at Rose City Labs, a cannabis and environmental analytics lab. George has 22 years of experience with liquid chromatography, both preparative and analytical. He's worked in HIV vaccine development as well as cancer and autoimmune disorder drug development. His PhD in molecular plant sciences with an emphasis in biochemistry is from Washington State University. On today's episode, we're going to get up to speed on psilocybin analytical labs because they are about to become incredibly relevant, just like cannabis labs have. During set one, we will look closely at the components of mushrooms and get a better understanding of what we are looking for specifically. During the second set, we will talk about prevention of bad actors gaming the system and trying to cheat like folks do in cannabis labs, along with some of the mechanics of mushroom sampling. And during this third set, we're going to talk about mushroom storage at home and specific varieties of potent mushrooms. Welcome to Shaping Fire, George.
1: Thank you very much, Shango. I'm super excited to be here.
0: Right on. Well, thank you for bringing your, um, your rare skill set to us because we're excited to talk about it. So, you know, by now, most of us understand that with cannabis analytics, we are looking for potency of a range of cannabinoids and terpenes to help us understand the potency of our flower. And what we're curious to start with is what are the constituents of psilocybin mushrooms that we want to measure?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, it is very similar. We are looking at a potency measure when we're looking at the biomass of mushrooms or an extract, for example. Um, there are alkaloids in mushrooms, uh, in the psilocybin mushrooms that are our target, as opposed to the cannabinoids and terpenoids in cannabis. And there are five primary ones. Uh, there's two that most people know about, which are psilocin and psilocybin. And then there's three additional ones, nor psilocin, and norbaocysteine. These are the five primary ones that people look for. There's also uh, an additional sixth analyte called arginacine, which uh, can also be found in the psilocybin mushrooms. And that's actually um, so six total, but five that people mostly look at. And then I have a feeling people are going to be more interested in arginacine going forward. I've heard a couple people talk about um, a hypothesis that they think that might be responsible for some of the the wood lover mushroom issues, like there's uh, you know, toxins from wood lover mushrooms that can make people sick. So, uh, and that's actually a pretty good segue into why we're doing this. You know, the, the main reason is safety. That's why I'm interested in doing this is these molecules are quite powerful and have the ability to influence the way people think quite substantially. So uh, with this being introduced to a whole new group of people with the legalization of psilocybin in Oregon, um, we want to make sure people are safe.
0: So these other metabolites, um, you know, I feel actually quite rookie about this because, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with um, solosin and psilocybin. But the other, uh, what, four that you mentioned, like I've never heard of any of them. Um, you mentioned one of them that, um, you know, it can be toxic. So I'm guessing
1: that that, that I don't know for sure if it's oh, toxic, it's a but I've heard a couple people. You know, mention that they think that might be involved. So yeah, I don't know for sure. Um, okay, cool. Thank you for the correction. A, <laughs> I don't want to put
0: words <laughs> in a, your mouth. Yeah.
1: For sure, there's a lot of unknowns here in this industry and in this in this topic. You know, it's been in the dark for so long, being a uh, Schedule One substance that people weren't allowed to do this research for a fair a very long time. But thanks to You know, organizations like MAPS and people like Rick Doblin, they've opened up the uh, ability for us to start looking at these things again, which actually happened way back in the 60s, so...
0: So these these other constituents are um, other than uh, uh, psilocybin and psilocybin are those four all uh, things that you that that we are trying to analyze and get potency for because we want to encourage them because we think that they are you know like perhaps helper molecules for psilocybin or something or are the are the other other four really more things that we want to track for potential negative reasons.
1: Well, for the norsilicin, baiocysteine, and norbaocysteine I know that people are definitely interested in them as psychedelic molecules. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not believe there's major toxicity associated with those in larger doses. Um, they're more minor alkaloids in uh, the mushroom compared to psilocybin and psilocin and uh, you know I, they're not found in every species either i've definitely seen um baocysteine and nor in some uh samples from customers but i have yet to see nor show up so um and some of these molecules you know convert into each other you know psilocybin converts into psilocin uh, and all of these molecules are very similarly related structurally.
0: You know, it reminds me right away of the entourage effect in cannabis. And, Indeed. And, you know, um, so, oh, good. So that's that's what, what I'm curious about. Do you think that, and again, I know we're very early in this research, but do you think we're going to find that these, um, these different constituents are working together? Or do you think that they just happen to sometimes co-occur?
1: Yeah, I be hard pressed to believe that they don't have some sort of synergy or interaction with each other because you can make the analogy to cannabis where you look at cbd and thc for example they don't bind to the same receptors that's why they have different effects in the body and you know while we know the uh target for psilocin and psilocybin we we may not know all the target receptors for the other constituents and we might not even know if psilocybin and psilocybin touch other receptors either you know there's a uh, the experiments that are done in order to figure this stuff out are pretty complicated and involve like uh, you know binding kinetics with the analyte and the receptor and it takes a great deal of work to uh, to figure out and then you also when you have lower affinity or what I mean by that is like the interaction between the receptor and the molecule is not very high it's like really low those can be actually hard to discover that they're binding to in the cell or on the cells so it takes even more uh, extensive work to discover the minor receptors that they might interact with. Wow, that's really
0: interesting. All right, so so I know for me, the four that you mentioned other than um, psilocybin and psilocybin were all new to me, but to people who are studying at your level and understand um, these mushrooms intimately... Um, it, it, are you expecting there to be some or many more constituents of the mushrooms that, that we discover and find out are things that we do want to analyze? Like, like, is the, so this is an, this, the, the the number of things we were going to be looking for in these assays is expanding as we learn more.
1: Exactly. Yeah. There is some work going on in Israel where they have a very advanced lab where, pardon me, where they use a different technique than we use in Flourish to look at these um, analytes. They're using um, mass spectrometry. And with liquid chromatography coupled with a mass spectrometer, you can identify molecules that are super low abundance maybe a thousand fold more sensitive than the HPLC UV that I'm using to do these quantitative analytics and I know that they've discovered a host of new molecules uh, in psilocybin mushrooms that uh Is in the literature and just really isn't well known at all. And then what you need to do then is single out these molecules and then do experiments with each of them. And this is a very massive effort. And you know, um, one of the biggest deficiencies I have right now is uh, in this field is the time. To uh, dive really deep into the literature of, of uh, basic research. Most of my work right now is involved with researching method development because I'm setting up additional tests outside of psilocybin mushrooms, which we can talk about later if you're interested or maybe next time. But uh, most of my time is spent developing new tests for the lab, so I'm a little bit deficient on the newest. Uh, alkaloids coming out of uh, these mushrooms but that 's actually something we could probably talk about in a single episode if you're ever interested in the future
0: <laughs> it's really interesting to, to uh, experience how much opportunity that there is in mushrooms right now you know for, for, for somebody who sees themselves as a you know a, a, an organic chemist or you know a naturalist scientist to the idea that there's you know all these species to discover and then there's all these species to then do um, you know experimentation within the lab, and then you know of course how they're interacting with the human. Like what what a time to be somebody early career who is interested Absolutely. in this.
1: Yeah, actually, I have two answers to that question. First of all, you said additional species. So right now, I've been talking mostly about the psilocybe mushrooms. And one thing that I thought was really interesting too is I've even seen a reference where people have found bufatinin. In the mushrooms, wow. that's the same one found in the toad, right? That's right. a really powerful DMT molecule. Uh, that's another reference I'd need to follow up and verify, but I thought that was super interesting. But for other species, there are like Gymnopolis and F- Foliota. There are these molecules called bisnoragonin, hispidin, and then in Amanita, there's muscomole, ibotenic acid, Muscazone. So there's There's a host of other molecules that can be looked into as well, you know. So just narrowing down on the psilocybe mushrooms is uh, super interesting, but there's also a lot more out there. And to be honest, when we're talking about the fungal kingdom, there is so much we don't know. I mean, unbelievable amount of information out there to be mined by people to uh, figure out what's going on with these absolutely incredible uh, uh, organisms.
0: So I know that you know the the few labs that there are for for mushrooms in the United States, they you know they they look different and they're run different. Um, but I'm going to ask you like a real general question from your experience, just kind of about all labs in general, which is, um, do you think that mostly labs are, are being set up at this point just for psilocybe, or do you think that you know both part of their business model to be able to have a more variety of customers, but also the direction that interest is going would you say that most labs are are setting themselves up for the amanita and all these you know these other mushrooms that are coming into um, popularity again
1: yeah well first of all most people are going to be handcuffed by their laws so it's only legal to mess with any of these in very few places in the country the state of Oregon uh, Denver Oakland and Maybe I have heard of a lab in Michigan, but I don't know if they're just doing it without having the laws changed yet. Um, so, and there's a couple levels of of this answer here. So, um, to set up the testing for psilocybin and psilocin, it's not that difficult. There's information out there in the literature. You don't need a tremendous amount of equipment. You know, you know, twenty, thirty thousand in dollars investment, and and you could get going. Now, having the ability to do you know, analytical method development and develop methods for things that there might not be a lot of information out there is going to be a real challenge for anyone that doesn't have a massive amount of experience in chromatography method development with uh, HPLC or LCMS. Um, so uh, what I've noticed is several of the labs that are up and running, well, several. There's only a few. Um, most of the people doing it are very young scientists, and by young I don't mean their physiological age, but the amount of experience they have with this type of work. And the less experience you have doing this, the more difficult it is to expand into different um, you know, species or different tests. And me, I've been doing chromatography method development for 20 years, you know, um, it's kind of funny, I, I just recently announced that I can test for cordycepin, and, uh, I got some cordyceps mushrooms from a guy on Instagram, you know, collaborated with, he gave me some material to help m- develop my method, and, uh... I had this guy's uh, mushroom and an extract for, gosh, it must have been two months. And I've just been so busy in my day job and all the other things uh, involved. I'm a parent, I'm a father, uh, I'm a husband. And uh, I just didn't have time to get to it. And then just last weekend, you know, I developed a method for cordyceps in two days. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of people are not going to have the base knowledge to do something like that so quickly. And then, you know validating the method and making sure it's correct you know it takes a lot more work after you develop it to make sure that it's correct and you know we can have um, really challenging issues where two different molecules have what's called the same retention time um, and what that means is when you have a complex molecule, say I do an extraction of a, of a mushroom and then I put it through my machine, we use a column that is packed with a bed of what's called resin, which is basically a bed of uh, a bead that has a chemical functional group or a chemistry uh, interactive group on the surface of a molecule. We take our complex mixture of mushrooms and we pass it through that mo- through that column. And all the molecules in the mixture interact with the surface of that column resin in a different way. This is how they start to separate out and resolve from each other. Mm-hmm. And so when you put a sample on a column, you can have stuff come out within a couple minutes, 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 minutes to be even longer, depending on how fast the flow is and how uh, how much interaction occurs between the molecule of interest and the resin bed of the column. So these retention times is how you distinguish which molecule is which, because if you do everything the exact same way every time, they should come out to the same retention time within 0.05 uh, minutes of each other, you know, within seconds. They should be very reproducible. Now, if we have two molecules that are almost identical, for example, silicin, and psilocybin is a very subtle change, where psilocybin loses a phosphate group, which is a phosphorus and four oxygens. And when you do that, you actually get a pretty big change in the physiological uh, behavior or the, uh, the chemical behavior of the molecule. And then you get these to separate very easily. And then with cordyceps, you're actually looking at molecules where it's as subtle of a change of a hydrogen and a an OH group so a hydroxyl to a hydrogen and everything else on the on the molecule is identical so separating those when there's such a subtle change is critical right because you don't want to tell people you're testing cortisepin but it's actually That peak also has either adenosine or 2-deoxyadenosine, right? You'll be giving them the wrong information. So you have to make sure that with your method development that you have all your controls in place and all your standards um, separating at what is called a baseline resolution so that you can actually quantitate or give people the concentration of these analytes in their mushrooms.
0: Right on. That was a very clear uh, explanation. And, you know, I've talked about this before when I was talking to Dr. Miyabi Shields on this show, but I really like, um, uh, I don't know, the artisan approach... Where by, by creating these lab processes, right? Kind of you're kind of in, inventing your own tools. Um, my, you know, all my, my 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 grand my grandpa and my uncles they were all uh, carpenters, and I remember when I was a kid the first time that I realized that you know they needed to do something in carpentry, and so they actually developed and made a tool because that tool didn't exist, and the idea mm-hmm. that you could like invent tools was like fascinating to me as a kid it still is cool to me yeah and that's essentially you know what you're describing is that all right we've got we've got this new box of information called mushrooms and you know we need to come up with tools to be able to open this box uniquely and um i get pretty jazzed by that um let's talk about uh terpenes um I've only really understood that, we're, that there have been terpenes in mushrooms for about three years after it came up uh, un, uh, un, unexpectedly uh, during an interview. And so, you know, since that time, I have been trying to learn everything I can about um, mushroom terpenes. Um, they, they, they seem to be incredibly subtle. They certainly don't play as big of a role to, to humans as, as an aroma attractant as they do in our, our favorite plant, cannabis. Um, but, but you know, all of the mushroom research I'm talking about is saying they're, they're like, you know, these terpenes are going to be a bigger deal than we take them for now. And so I I, I would like to hear what you have to say about. Um, you know, the terpene, like, like, you know, are you testing for mushroom terpenes? Are there a few that are particularly common? And, uh, in your conversations with your customers, um, uh, you know, do you have any, you know, status quo of where we're at as far as understanding the role that terpenes play in these mushrooms?
1: Your last question is the easiest one to answer, and uh, the role that these terpenes are playing, for the most part, we have no clue. This is a brand (laughs) new area of research. I mean, there might be a couple um, labs around the world that would disagree with me and say they know more, and they probably do, but these are kind of obscure, and I don't really know too much about them. Uh, I'm definitely not an expert in mushroom terpenes uh, because uh, they're so new, and One thing I'd like to say is they're very different from the cannabinoid terpenes. As you said, cannabinoid terpenes are typically associated with uh, odor and providing us with that beautiful profile that we get from all the diversity in the cannabis plants. Uh, the, uh, the uh, The terpenes found in mushrooms are generally called triterpenes, so they're much larger. And they're more complex often than the ones we know about in cannabis. And uh, they do not have odors associated with them because they're not as volatile, oh. if they're volatile at all. And um, they're found in some species and not others. For example, the reishi mushroom has a large group of triterpenes that are uh, people are very interested in. And they are much more complicated to test for um, right now, like first of all, getting standards for them uh, can be a challenge. Most people that are going to be looking at terpenes are going to be using uh, mass spectrometry, which uh, these machines are very expensive, and. Um, flourish is definitely planning on buying one in the near future so that I can expand into these more uh, lower abundant molecules and ones that you might not be able to find uh, you know authentic reference standards for because using a mass spectrometer, you don't always need a reference standard. Well, you don't need a reference standard to identify things. There's these databases that you can pay enormous amounts of money to have access to, and you can basically find just about any molecule that we know exists that way. If you want to use a mass spectrometer to quantitate, then you definitely need reference standards. So, um, But I have a feeling that these terpenes, these triterpenes from mushrooms, are going to be... Really important. I have a feeling that they're going to be critical in the bioactivity and the medicinal properties of these mushrooms. I believe there's also some found in turkey tail, and uh, definitely in lion's mane as well. And some of these other uh, mushrooms, they also have these unique compounds associated with them that aren't found in other species, like uh, you know these aranacines and. Uh, uh, What's the name of the other group of compound? Erinacines and hirsanones from lion's mane. There are these incredibly unique uh, uh, diterpenoids from the mycelium of lion's mane, uh, and also ones in the mycelium. I believe that's the erinacin, uh, and I believe the hersonones are more abundant in the fruiting body. And Paul Stamitz has talked about these quite a bit on various podcasts he's been on, and and you know. These are responsible for neurogenesis. Well, the hypo—I don't know that I should say that. I know there's a very strong hypothesis that uh, these things are helping. You know, in vivo in humans, there's definitely in vitro work showing that these lion's mane compounds actually initiate neurogenesis. And if um, Paul Stamets has also referred to other work that shows when you combine psilocybin and lion's Genesis And also another thing that he's, oh, sorry, I just hit the mic. Um, another thing that he led onto on one of the Joe Rogan podcasts years ago is the combination of these two molecules. And then you add in uh, niacin or vitamin B3. And what niacin is a vasodilator and it can dilate the very um, well, it dilates all blood vessels, right? But if you think about where you need these molecules to work, if someone is dealing with neuropathy from diabetes or from some, uh, you know, traumatic injury, and we want to get the psilocybin and the lion's mane molecules to the absolute depths of the periphery of our, ner- of our. Um, of our circulatory system, these are the capillaries, all the the deep parts of our brain. You know, like where the neurogenesis is needed, where the neurodegradation has occurred, mm-hmm. and by combining all these together. You're going to get a stronger response by the combination of the arinacines and hercenones with the psilocybin, and then using something like niacin to push these molecules to the absolute end of the circulatory system where they're most needed. And so I think that's just absolutely fascinating. And uh, I was actually, what actually precipitated the beginning of Flourish Labs was I was thinking about making a supplement with uh, lion's mane and uh niacin and then you know letting people get their own psilocybin but then all these laws changed and i thought about you know making this as a product and then i had a couple friends say oh i think you should make a testing lab which i need to shout out both of those people a couple of really good friends one's been my friend since uh college uh jeffrey thank you so much for pushing me towards this lab. And then uh, another guy that he's worked with and I've become friends with, uh, a guy named Drew. And I want to thank both of those guys a lot, because without them I probably wouldn't be here right now. I would have missed the boat.
0: So let's let's come at the mushroom from a different um, direction. Oh, before before we do that, I wanted to uh, uh, just uh, jump on the niacin bit. Um, you know, we've talked about niacin and microdosing on the show here a couple times, and you're the first person who explained why niacin is in the stack. So right. so thank you for uh, explaining that. Um, that's really a valuable um, uh,
1: insight. So there's actually something really interesting about that as well. Um, Niacin, if you take too much, you can get what's called a niacin flush. I have done this. (laughs) Yeah, it's not fun, not super dangerous, but not fun. And so, one of the cool things about using niacin in this context is you can prevent people from taking a whole bunch of, not that you you don't want to be the psilocybin police, but you know, by putting niacin in the microdose, you're not going to take too many because you're going to get a niacin flush way before you start tripping. And if you want to have a macrodose, just you know, grab five grams of some good mushrooms and go for it.
0: <laughs> I see what you're saying. Yeah, so that so that once they are on store shelves, it decreases the likelihood that people are going to take their whole bottle of of exactly. microdose and at for, the same
1: time. Yeah, for jurisdictions that are worried about this, you know, that are more conservative, it might be a really good thing because there are molecules you could add in there that will dilate your blood vessels without the niacin flush. There's some peptides and some other molecules, small molecules that'll do that. Right. On. So let's talk about adulterants. Right. So, you know,
0: again, most of us have got cannabis analytics as our framework in our head. And in addition to like the cannabinoids and the terpenes that that were that we want, um, we're also especially in the licensed system uh, looking at at molds and heavy metals and mm-hmm. um, and like just, you know, uh, chemicals from like Eagle 20 and things like this. Um, you know mushrooms are not grown the same way as plants of course so from your perspective um what uh, what Substances might we be um, searching for in mushrooms in the lab um, that would suggest that they were perhaps uh, grown incorrectly or in, in an unclean environment, which would cause us to um, reject batches of mushrooms. I don't know what that would be, but I'm assuming
1: there are. There's yeah I'm I'm not a mushroom grower I never have grown mushrooms so I'm a, a little bit um, uneducated here. The cool thing about mushrooms, if you screw it up, my understanding is a lot of times you don't get anything. Like if you get a contamination, a lot of times the contamination will outrun the mushrooms that you're growing, so mm-hmm. you basically just have to throw it out. Um, I'm I'm sure there are situations where people are growing with. Uh, maybe substrates that might have heavy metals in them or substrates that might be contaminated with a, uh, some sort of organism that would be unhealthy for us. And so I absolutely plan on instituting this type of testing at Flourish Labs um, as well. I believe when it comes time for the regulated legal testing under 109 you will be looking for contaminants like heavy metals and uh, you know bacteria or other fungi that could be dangerous to humans that might be slow growing and we'll use a PCR genetic test to determine these things which is really pretty straightforward, not difficult to do um, and going to be critical again because you're taking you're basically making a food. Right or a medicine for somebody that they're going to ingest in their body, and it has to be clean.
0: Right on. So let's let's get back to the analytics. So um, I understand that you know one of the things that are interesting about mushrooms is that not only do they have um, you know common uh, um, common constituents that are just used in and applied in novel ways in fungus, but also there are some um, constituents that that. uh, don't occur very often, except in mushrooms. And the type of uh, labs that we're almost familiar with—they're—they're they're using uh, chemical standards for um, for these constituents, and then um, you know, using the technology compare against the standard um, to then figure out how much of it is in any particular mushroom. I'm, I'm right. guessing that since um, you know the psilocybe mushroom is still a Schedule One at the federal level, that some of these standards uh might actually be challenging to get your hands on but i'm willing to be open to the, pa- to the fact that maybe they all already exist and it's just been access to them for years and years so so tell us a little bit about how difficult standards are to be able to obtain to do the work
1: yes this is one of the most common questions i get from people and you'd be surprised how easy it is um so there's a philosophy here that is pretty um, straightforward. So these molecules, you, you have to take a certain dose, right? And so in order to get the standards, you contact these chemical companies, and they basically have one milligram per milliliter solutions that you can buy. They're DEA exempt because you're paying anywhere from 70 to a few hundred dollars for a single milligram. Nobody's going to be abusing these things you're you're going to you can go down the street and find them for way cheaper Mm. Right, so they're dea exempt when it's a milligram or less and they're often in solvents you would never put in your body so it's too much of a hassle to try to get these and abuse them. It's super expensive, and no one would ever do it. That's why they're DEA exempt. Now, if you go trying to buy five grams, or you try gram more than, or you're drying a trying to dry uh, buy a powder, then you need a DEA license. But just for a single milligram, uh, one mg per mil reference standards, all you need is a legitimate laboratory and. Uh, by legitimate laboratory, when you start a company like this, or you have a laboratory you're starting in a nonprofit or in a university, you know the companies vet your location. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have a mail service, you can't have. You need a legitimate commercial laboratory location for them to even send them to you. So that's the that's where the level of of uh, sort of uh, regulation comes in by the actual chemical companies. They won't just sell them to anybody. Also, right on, cool.
0: Alright so let's talk about um, sampling. Um, As we all know um, people game the system all the time in cannabis by um, by which flowers they choose to send right. to the lab um, maybe they 're just sending colas or maybe they 'll roll the flower in key first or you know whatever they 're going to do it's it's not a representative sample which scientifically is is actually quite um, a process of having and having and having um, a, a large lot all the way down to a small lot but, right. but when you're done mathematically it's it's representative of the entire lot um right. when it comes to mushrooms though um uh i don't know what a sampling uh, process is like and so yeah. does it matter which mushrooms you pick like can you game the system Absolutely. by by sending like a larger or a smaller one tell us a little bit about that
1: Yes. So uh, one of the most interesting things about these mushrooms to me is the variability of the alkaloid content from flush to flush, from mushroom to mushroom, and also within the mushrooms themselves. So I believe it's going to be a lot harder to adulter them than with cannabis for a couple reasons. We can get to that in a moment. But uh, I had a customer interested in looking at the various uh, structural aspects of the mushroom, and so when the mushrooms are growing, you know the way that they grow, the the cap and the stem appear fused for a really long time, and some mushrooms have a veil, which is like a little skirt around the uh, mm-hmm. the cap that attaches to the the stalk, and then when that opens, then the uh, the spores are able to drop from the mushroom cap. Now I've been told by growers that, and also seeing research in the literature, where most likely the most potent time to harvest is just before the uh, caps open and the veils open, like so everything is closed up. However, if you look even more carefully, I had a customer like section the mushroom uh from the stem, the the bottom of the stem up to the tip of the cap when we looked at the lower part of the stem and we looked at the the stem and the junction of the stem and the cap right there so it like he, he took about i don't know a few a half a centimeter to the right uh of the stalk side and about a half a centimeter to the right of uh, the left of the of the cap, and he sliced that, and then he took the top of the cap. And when we looked at that, that center piece with a veil connected to the stalk and the cap was by far the most potent part of the mushroom.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah,
1: like, like two-fold more potent than the cap, and maybe like two and a half to three times more potent than the stem.
0: That's a really funny answer because everybody argues about whether or not stems or caps are, are the most potent, but actually it's, so
1: it's, it's, it's where they join. Well, in that instance, definitely, because I've also seen uh, just recently a guy on Instagram showed that the stalk was more potent than the cap. And so this opens up a whole host of questions around mushroom cultivation, right? So we've learned a ton about steering plants to produce molecules, cannabis with THC or CBD, other plants, you know, that like uh, to produce compounds of interest for pharmaceutical or, or industrial purposes. Um, I'm really interested to see if we can do this with fungi. And once these growers get out of the basements and closets and start making these commercial facilities and they're able to control their environments with really high level, um, uh, oh, man, I'm missing a lot of words today. I totally apologize. <laughs> it's all good. You know, I, high fidelity control of their environment you know they can tune it up or down a couple degrees a couple percent humidity they control co2 oxygen levels light dark when the when the mushroom growers get these tools are they going to be able to produce highly consistent batches they might well they might not also because maybe the mushrooms control this in a way we don't understand um, I did briefly read an abstract of a paper last night where they claimed that they could influence the alkaloids in the mushrooms by uh, growth conditions. Uh, so it's definitely possible. It's just going to take a massive effort of research and development on the on the mushroom grower part growers parts to you know normalize cultivation so that um, people that are producing products can grab a batch from the same grower every time and know more or less that their product is going to uh, come out the way they expect. Now, if this is not the case, it's really good news for labs like myself because if they have a consistent batch every time, you don't necessarily have to test every batch. Of, of raw material before you make a product, right? But if you're varying more than 10% of your raw material batches, they're going to have to test every batch so they know how to make their product. So then I would be able to be testing pre-product formation, and then I would be testing their products as well. So um, for the growers and the product uh, and the producers and people making product, I hope that they can uh, normalize the grow and get consistent batches. Um, it will just help them save a lot of money, you know. And the testing, we're going to be there. We're going to be required to test everything before it hits the shelves, if there ever is retail, or before it hits the clinic, before it's given to patients. So you know, our niche is there, uh, but we're definitely available to help if that is the case where they need pre and post testing. Right on.
0: So uh, let's go ahead and take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue uh, down the same um, the same vein and, and talk about um, uh, testing mushrooms that have been dried or fresh. Um, you are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is biochemist George Selhorn. And, you know, without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know you heard them on Shaping Fire. There are a lot of good people launching new businesses in cannabis, psilocybin, and other psychedelics, and it's a very strange time for us. In the same moment that psilocybin mushrooms are illegal at the federal level, they are becoming increasingly legal in states across the country. These businesses leading the way into the future of plant medicines require specialized legal representation by attorneys who have depth not only in litigation, mergers, and acquisitions, but also in psychedelic and other plant medicines. Greenlight Law Group has been empowering cannabis businesses since 2014. And as the market has diversified into psilocybin and other plant medicines, Greenlight has been right there, evolving with their diverse clients to provide legal expertise with a high level of legal acumen, creative strategy, and precision that comes with an intimate and specific understanding of both business law and plant medicine. If you are a business owner trying to navigate the layered local and national drug laws on your own, you are at risk of fumbling. These confusing and quickly changing laws complicate everything. Green Light Law Group is ready to help you when hit with a lawsuit, or because you were shafted by a vendor or business partner, or simply because you want to stay legal and could use some preventative guidance before cultivating a controlled substance as an entrepreneur. Greenlight Law Group is a collection of folks who care profoundly about their work, and I know this is true because I know the folks from Greenlight. There is a huge difference between a big legal firm who has decided to start representing a few drug companies versus working with a collection of high integrity, passionate lawyers who are personally interested in new plant medicines and firmly believe in their power to heal. Contact Green Light Law Group today and learn more about the services they can offer your industry-leading cannabis or psychedelics company. That's Green Light Law Group at GreenLightLawGroup.com. Once you've discovered the benefits of using cannabis, it's a very small step to start making your own edibles, gummies, lotions, tinctures, and concentrated oils at home. Magical Butter has been helping cannabis consumers become self-sufficient for over a decade. With the easy-to-use Magical Butter Countertop Botanical Extractor, you can create high-quality cannabis products to your exact specifications at a fraction of the cost of store-bought edibles. I talk a lot on this show about the importance of home-growing so you don't have to rely on others to feel healthy. Well, the Magical Butter Machine can empower your personal health by putting you in control of how you use cannabis in your daily life. I've been making my own butters and oils on the stove for years, and I much prefer the ease of using the Magical Butter Machine. I just set it and walk away. With the simple touch of a button, the Magical Butter Machine grinds, heats, stirs, and steeps your herbal extract all at the correct time interval and temperature for the perfect infusion every time. As a result, you achieve your desired infusion easily, safely, and consistently. Check out the Magical Butter Instagram to see the machine in action. And don't feel like you have to go it alone. There is a huge community on Facebook called Magical Butter Users United, sharing recipes and best practices so you can learn at your own pace from others who are already doing it successfully. Now is the time to get your own Magical Butter machine and save money while enjoying cannabis. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps, to get 10% off. Visit MagicalButter.com today. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Hembra Genetics Collection to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. That's Hembra, spelled H-E-M-B-R-A. Hembra is not just another seed bank. Hembra is a woman-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 50 breeders and over 500 strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Hembra Genetics has something for everyone with over 350 feminized strains, 200 regular varieties, and over 100 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust like Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, Canarado, In-House Genetics, FastBuds, and Gnome Automatics. We both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Hembra to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it, and you'll usually receive your seeds in just a few days. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you this fast. But Hember cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. So save a few bucks by using this discount code too. Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout to save 10% off your order. Buy seeds from good folks who will get you great seeds reliably every time. Visit HembraGenetics.com today. That's Hembra Genetics. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los, and my guest today is biochemist George Selhorn. So during the first set, we talked a lot about uh, what is actually in mushrooms in general, but specific psilocybe that we want to test for. And then we talked a bunch about the things that might be in mushrooms that we don't, that I mean, that we want to test for, that we don't want to have in there. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the mushroom uh, itself and, and getting, getting it prepped for the analytics um do mushrooms always have to be dried first to test or can we test them fresh and and do can we can we only compare fresh tests against fresh tests or can we t- uh, compare fresh tests against dry tests because because the water aspect doesn't matter
1: yes we can absolutely test wet or dry mushrooms um Dry mushrooms are a little easier to homogenize than a wet mushroom, uh, but it's totally possible. And uh, we control for moisture. You know, we do dry weights, uh, dry weight measurements in the end. So basically, if I were to get a dried mushroom from uh, a batch and a wet mushroom from a batch, what I would do is homogenize both individually, and then you weigh out a sample. And then you extract it and you do the HPLC and you get your numbers. And then um, I always ask for a little bit extra. Uh, You know, you need a portion of mushroom to do the analytics on, and you need a portion of the mushroom to dehydrate so you can get the true dry weight. So um, even when I get a dried mushroom from a customer, I will take a small bit of it and, you know, I basically have a little dehydrating oven that will, uh, completely dry it out at, I use 104 degrees so it's not too hot and it doesn't matter right? because I'm not actually testing the part that you dehydrate you pull out a sample first to do the testing so it doesn't get any heat treatment light or uh, oxidative degradation And just at the end, all you do is a math adjustment to adjust for the loss of water, just like in cannabis. So it doesn't matter what the water content is. You can compare any mushroom as long as you fully dehydrate a sample and calculate the dry weight percentage.
0: Typically, um, how much of a sample in, in dry weight? Cause I'm figuring dry is, is almost a hundred percent of what everybody's using. Yeah. But, um, uh, how big of a sample, uh, do you think a lab is going to request most of the time? Um, because, uh, you know same thing in cannabis having a little bit extra is helpful especially if something comes up and goes wrong and you yeah, have, you to, have to test yeah, yeah exactly so what what do sample samples volumes or sizes look yep. like for mushrooms
1: uh so for me i prefer two grams uh two grams is plenty for me uh, i've seen other labs ask for three four and five grams which in my humble opinion is a little bit excessive uh, but for for the way I do it is I get two grams from a customer and typically uh, most people are fully dehydrating these things themselves. Uh, I would say an average like, you know, air dried mushroom has about 10% moisture. But most of the ones that I'm getting for, from people only have about 1% moisture. So they're fully dehydrating before I get them. So I usually make a very small dry weight adjustment. But yeah, two grams is plenty for me. I keep one gram for the dehydration step and I keep one gram for analytics because for the analytics i use about uh, 250 to 350 milligrams so that gives me at least two tests two extractions that if i had to extract their sample twice then i have plenty for the extractions and plenty for the dehydration
0: one of the challenges that was very common with labs at the beginning of uh, licensed cannabis was uh testing edibles because um it's so much. It's so much more difficult to target in on the cannabinoids when you've got you know God knows what else is in this brownie. Um, is it uniquely more difficult to find mushroom metabolites in chocolate or other edibles? Because you know chocolates and honey and gummies seem to be the the three ways that um, mushroom edibles are first coming to market.
1: Right. Um, so there's an interesting chemistry problem here, and it's both in cannabis and in uh, mushroom stuff. So real quickly on cannabis, we know that the cannabinoids are, are fat-soluble. They're, they're uh, hydrophobic molecules, which is why it's really easy to make a chocolate bar with cannabis because it has a bunch of fat in it, whereas it's way more difficult to make a consistent gummy because you're putting a hydrophobic molecule into a water-based product, a gummy. Now, we flip this when we go to the mushrooms. It's super easy to make really consistent gummies. All the gummies that I've tested from people have been really consistent. And then flip that, the chocolate bar, and now you're trying to put a water-soluble molecule into a fat-soluble product. So... The consistency in the chocolate bar is more challenging with an alkaloid than uh, terpene from cannabis. And I test for both. I have uh, methods for edibles, extracts, and fruiting bodies, so I can do all of those things. Um, I th- think this is the only lab in the country doing edibles, but I'm not positive. I haven't seen advertisements for anybody else doing edibles. Well, that certainly
0: explains why I'm seeing the growth in mushroom uh... Um, you know, gummies and gelatin-based yeah. stuff. Uh, you know, traditionally, chocolates have been incredibly popular. But if the if the if the homogenization is a problem, that's Indeed. a that's a big deal breaker as far as consistency. And and as we all know, from especially
1: that, with a psychedelic,
0: <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Um, and and as we know, like during the transition from um, you know the the heritage market to the medicinal market, you know, the semi legal medicinal market and then a licensed market in cannabis that you know the biggest reason uh, to go in that direction is for consistency for patients right, right. and and we're, ju- we're 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 climbing that same mountain now with mushrooms trying to figure out what is the Absolutely. what's the best way to create repeatable results for patients um because you know, that that's the that's the only reason for legalization in, in, in my or not legalization but licensing. Because I don't right. I don't really believe that the state should be involved with licensing or taxing this at all. But sure. I do like the idea of there being consistency in the products, uh, because in the end my number one priority is is patience. So yeah. so that makes some sense why the gummies are kinda everywhere now.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, there's a downside to these edible things too, like sugar is such a huge problem in this western culture and you know everybody wants to put it in this sweet candy it's just it's not the best route for medicine in my opinion
0: yeah i'm with i'm with you on that that's why i've pushed um tinctures as a as a great primary thing because you know with capsules you're kind of uh well for cannabis anyway with cannabis uh capsules you're gonna have a whole bunch that are exactly the same and there's no variability from day to day and then you know all these people are eating all these 10 milligram cookies and you know that's not necessarily great for patients either
1: yeah right so with mushrooms, it's great, right? Because it's water soluble. We could make teas and beverages without sugar. It, you could even make a concentrate into a few milliliters, like in it, you could make like a shot size, and just boom, right there. You know, because it's so easy to get these alkaloids into water. They're water soluble. And uh, there's actually a really interesting thing I'd like to add here, um, something that I've discovered over the last six months since I started this company. Um, a one-milligram dose in a gummy is not the same as a one-milligram dose in a fruiting body. And my hypothesis, which is supported by the types of molecules that make up the fungal biomass, mushrooms are essentially a time-release pill. We do not have enzymes in our gut to digest chitin, which is the cell wall of fungal biomass. So all of the degradation that takes place in the stomach and the gut is through the acidity of our stomach. So the the acid in our gut is going to break the mushroom down slowly and slowly release the alkaloid content of the mushroom over a period of time. Whereas you take a gummy and it has one milligram in it because it's been tested and we know it has one milligram of psilocybin in it or say 1.3 milligrams of psilocybin because there's a conversion factor there. You can feel one milligram in a gummy. You will not feel one milligram in an average potent mushroom. So, it's, so I, it comes on a, a lot faster, thing. too. Yes, you're basically getting all of the alkaloid dissolving immediately. You get this full milligram going into your bloodstream all at the same time. It's going to hit your receptors and cause an effect. So what I'm saying, excuse me, what I'm saying is for people out there, they start getting a hold of gummies, you know. Go easy first. Your mileage they, may vary. <laughs> take, yeah, your mileage may vary. Take less than more initially, and if it's been lab tested, that'll give you a really good metric for your, you know, dosing yourself. You know, it's, and I, I think with cannabis, that's been one of the coolest things is people like, okay, I know what one milligram, five milligrams, ten milligrams is going to do to me now.
0: So let let's talk about what's in that gummy, right? Not not the actual gummy and the sugar itself, but, um, you know. If, if what's in the gummy is not um, pulverized and powdered mushroom, it means that there is an extraction happening Correct. first. And then the result of that extraction is what's going into the gelatin process. What Correct. is that extraction?
1: It can vary. Um, so a lot of people are using 100% ethanol or grain alcohol because for one, it's uh, you know, you're allowed to consume it. And for number two, it's easy to evaporate off. So um, this is something I've actually been helping a lot of people uh, with their product development. I've been kind of doing consulting for people, which I'm definitely open to doing if anybody's interested. But because I have tons of extraction uh, experience both in cannabis and in mushrooms and in plant material in general, because I've done that my whole life in the lab and as a a recreational cannabis user, Um, you can extract with water. You can extract with uh, acidified water, uh, you know, add citrus juice or something. You can extract with methanol, ethanol, acetic acid. Um, however, you want to be able to, obviously, people don't use methanol when they're doing products, like you're making anything to be consumed. Uh, use methanol in the lab because it's the best one for extraction for uh, quantitation. Um My biggest, I would say the best solvent to use for extracting mushrooms is 100% ethanol. So, grain alcohol, you don't want to use lab 100% ethanol because these are uh, cut with really nasty adulterants to remove the last bit of water. So, Everclear is the best uh, if you're at home and you're not sure what to use. And the great thing about alcohol, especially 100% alcohol, is with very mild heat. You can boil that off. So, say you have an ounce of uh, of mushroom material that you want to extract as much as the psilocybin out as and psilocybin out as alkaloids. So, you will do a mechanical extraction. Either with you grind it up, you can put it in a vessel, you can just shake it with a shaker, you can use a vortex, you can use a more powerful method or like ultrasonication or some some way to get the alkaloids out of the mushroom. Then you filter your biomass out, and you have this liquid with your mushroom extract. Now, fortunately, the, the alkaloids are pretty good, well-resistant to mild heat, so you can add you know, 80, 90, 100 degree Fahrenheit heat to this, to this alcohol extract and boil it off until it's reduced to whatever volume you want. And then you'd add a little bit of water and then you boil off the rest of the ethanol and you have all of your alkaloids in distilled water and then you have a clean extract no harmful compounds unless there's something in the mushrooms you didn't know about unless there's something in your solvent you didn't know about but that's the cleanest way to produce a uh, uh psilocybin extract. And that also gives you control over concentration as well. You know, most the uh, sorry, go ahead.
0: I was just gonna say, and if that's how they are doing it, um, often when they're making these uh these edibles, that's great. But also that is a pretty simple process. That is something it that is. a citizen scientist or a home user would be able to do as well.
1: A hundred percent. And that's kinda of why I said it because Mostly what I think people are doing is they're kind of afraid to work with solvents, which, you know, very understandable. Uh, But just pure grain alcohol is totally safe. And um, a lot of people, I believe, are trying to extract in water. And they're unable to reach these higher concentrations. And there's other tricks you can do too, right? I said you have an ounce of mushrooms you extract into, I don't know, 100 milliliters of a solution. You can filter that biomass out. Take that sample that you have your extract in and use a fresh mushroom batch to re-extract, right, because the the solvent has a certain capacity to hold alkaloids, and you're never going to saturate that solution with one extraction. So that's another way you can increase the concentration of your extraction by using the same solvent or water on fresh batches of biomass. Right, and then you combine that with the alcohol thing, then you can achieve really high concentrations and and you know be able to make gummies or any kind of product by just diluting a little bit of it out.
0: That's the same way that I get my um uh, cannabis tinctures for myself for treating my brain injury up to the numbers that I want them to be. So I don't have to take like fricking five, six, eight squirts. Right? right. Um, I'll do a, you know, not a single, uh, not a double, but a triple maceration. So introduce the same ethanol to fresh mate- plant material three times. Yes, exactly. And so, and what did you call it? It's carrying capacity. Um, uh, what, <laughs> Uh, the uh, whatever it wasn't supposed to be a quiz, but but the the, the total amount of cannabinoids the ethanol can hold because that, that's where I want it to be, right? I want it to be at the highest, so yeah, the
1: saturation s- s- point essentially.
0: Yeah, so so I don't have to take in any more Everclear or you know whatever right. the ethanol is that I'm for that I'm using for it.
1: Mm. Right. And some people, you know, especially uh, you know recovered alcoholics or people that don't consume alcohol, they don't want that. Yeah. So you need to have an alternative, and luckily we can boil off. Uh, the uh, solvent pretty easy. And one thing I want to add to that real quick is uh, I've seen studies where people treat the psilocybin alkaloids up to 60 degrees Celsius, which is 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And even with you know relatively short treatments, 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, you don't get much degradation. So that's why you can heat these up to 100 degrees Fahrenheit and get almost no degradation if it's for a short time. You could also institute a rotovap, which is a rotating evaporator we use in the lab with mild heat. And that, you know, if you've got the money to buy a rotovap, for example, that will go even faster. So there's tools out there to to be able to do this.
0: I know that you've already said that um, you're not a mushroom cultivator, so you may not have uh, anything to say about this question, but um, people will indeed be curious if. If you have come across any ways um, that cultivators can increase their potency um, in you know in their growing bins, um, perhaps from a conversation with you know uh, a client of yours or something, you know because people are always looking to increase potency, and clearly you know getting good uh, you know genetics is is you know probably the number one thing, but do you have anything else to add
1: i The one thing that comes to mind is I've heard people talk about CO2 levels. I believe CO2 levels are important for uh, triggering fruiting body formation. And so I would imagine that um, the air composition, oxygen to CO2 ratio, and temperature are probably super important. I saw this really interesting post last night on Instagram that Paul Stamets put out, and uh, he was saying that the temperature of the mushroom is cooler than its surroundings. Mm. And so it has like this endothermic behavior when the fruiting body is is forming. And by endothermic, I mean it, it actually absorbs, is able to absorb heat because it's cooler it's like a than heat its surroundings. It's like a heat sink. Yeah. So an exothermic chemical reaction produces heat, and an endothermic reaction sucks heat out away from the reaction. So, for example... Um, when you mix like acetonitrile and water together, which is the solvents I use in the lab for uh, analytics, it gets cold and you have to let it warm up to room temperature before you use it. That's an endothermic reaction. So this chemical reaction occurs and then this mass now absorbs heat from the environment because the reaction like costs that biomass heat or that mass, not biomass. Um, but yeah, so you know temperature... Uh, CO2, oxygen are probably the first metrics I would look at. But again, that's that's a, a hypothesis based on very limited information.
0: Good enough. We'll take that. Um, So um, this is, I guess this is a little bit of a fanboy question, but, um, you know, what what varieties are you seeing consistently getting high potency results? I mean, online, just from based on people's talking, um, I I think that most people would put, uh, you know, whatever version of a penis envy at the top of that list. But, but you're, you know, you're in a unique place because you're uh, interacting with people who are growing a wide variety and you're seeing the test results Mm -hmm. um and uh um yeah i think i'll just stop there what are you seeing
1: yeah uh the most potent mushroom i've seen so far is an ape which Mm -hmm. i believe is a penis envy variety
0: albino penis envy yep
1: yep and uh i've actually seen some variability in different apes but uh the highest potency i've seen so far is 1.8 percent dry weight and uh um these beautiful apes that are just bluish and fat and beautiful, so that's one thing I I I almost said something earlier about people's um, visual appeal to mushrooms and comparing it to how people just freak out about cannabis flowers, but I know there's some mushroom geeks out there that totally love just looking at the different morphologies of these fungi and I find it super interesting as well, but uh, you know you can definitely see some people thinking, oh. A cannabis flower is way more beautiful than a mushroom, but no, I think that's uh, to the in, in the eye of the beholder, so to speak. But what I see when I look at these uh, these amazing natural organisms that we have, I see um, uh, chemistry factories, right? Like these mm-hmm. this unbelievable ability to produce these chemicals that um, nature is providing, and and it's so interesting too if you think about. Why plants are chemical factories. And it's a pretty simple answer. They can't run away. They can't run away from their predators. So they have to defend themselves chemically. And then plants and fungi have been on this planet for so long. They've had plenty of time to evolve mechanisms for defense, which are super broad. They've also had time to evolve uh, uh, molecules that affect... Organisms in other ways, which is what we get to benefit from, which is, I find, absolutely fascinating that these completely different organisms produce molecules that affect our brain chemistry. Like, that is, just blows my mind.
0: Right on. So um, let's go ahead and take uh, our second commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the, uh, the new existence of uh, mushroom analytics is actually changing uh, mushroom pricing um, in the underground. Mm. So uh, we're going to take this short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is biochemist George Selhorn. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile you can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's d-y-n-o-m-y-c-o dot Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. For decades, Americans have enjoyed cannabis flowers in joints and bongs and bowls. And now, with the normalization of cannabis use increasing across the country, we have the opportunity to enjoy smoking cannabis luxuries that simply were not attainable before. North Coast hand rolls blunts, cannons, rosin-infused donuts, and cannagars available in the state of Michigan. North Coast focuses on flavor over everything else. Instead of growing their own flower, North Coast goes out into the cultivation community and creates relationships with the best growers working with the best new cannabis varieties available. Surely, heavy THC is a factor, but North Coast focuses on aroma, complex terpene profiles, and taste that continues throughout the entire smoking experience. The North Coast team curates flowers like others curate art. They seek out the best talent, Build Relationships helps them take their product to the highest levels and then buys their well-cured flowers in order to hand-roll them just for you. I really like their hand-blown glass tips. And North Coast has branched out beyond cannagars into rosin solventless THCA diamonds and exceptional hash rosin carts for on-the-go cannabis connoisseurs too. North Coast provides you with attainable luxury, offering you an ultra-premium smoking experience at a price that seems reasonable and repeatable. To find out more about North Coast's line of cannabis products, visit their Instagram at northcoast.rolling. That's northcoast.rolling. And when in Michigan, ask for North Coast at your favorite shop, North Coast. After you've caught up on the latest Shaping Fire episodes, do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn? Well, we got you. Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast. When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Zoe Sigmund's lecture, Understanding Your Endocannabinoid System, Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile. Frenchie Cannoli's Lost Art of the hashishian presentation, Nicholas Mahmood on Regenerative and Polyculture Cannabis Growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the History of Cannabis Medicine Around the World, Eric Vlosky and Josh Rutherford on Solventless Extraction, and Jeff Lowenfels on the Soil Food Web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system too. While there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire Sessions series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff lowenfels and even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. So go to youtube.com forward slash Shango or click on the link in the newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and my guest today is biochemist George Selhorn. So one of the interesting, um, I guess, impacts from the, the recent existence of Mushroom Labs is how it is impacting price in the I guess both the the underground mushroom market and also in the just blossoming um, soon-to-be-licensed market, Um, because up until labs existed, a psilocybin mushroom was a psilocybin mushroom. They were generally the same. Some had their, you know, people had their preferences because maybe they had a good trip on it one time or they like how they looked more. Um, And then then people would be like, oh, these tend to be stronger than these other ones. But it was really just conjecture and very anecdotal on, and I first, you know, each person had their own opinion. And there was no way to compare and contrast. Aha, enter Mushroom Labs now. And so now we actually know what's in them and so there's this new variety you know up until now it was you know people's preference and maybe maybe the mushroom had something desirable about it like it was albino or leucistic or or oh cool it looks like penises you know which is you know kind of kind of a, a, a novel thing too so people were making decisions on you know aesthetic choices but now we you know you can you can put them in a lab and say all right this this you know black Cap albino penis envy is the most potent thing that you know we've gotten tested versus you know this Brazilian which is beautiful and easy to grow and has these other attributes that we're attracted to, but you know it's only point you know, seven percent, or not point seven percent. It's it's only seventy percent as potent as the ape, for example. I just made that number up, right. so but but just for the example. And so that is now impacting uh, pricing at the at the street and manufacturing level, because people are starting to charge more for ultra potent mushrooms like these apes, and that's very interesting. Um, what is your experience like? behind the scenes with your customers because, you know, it's getting to be a bit like cannabis where the higher the THC, the more likely it is to be sold. Well, the potency of mushrooms is now um, becoming related to the price as well from both people who are taking it for a spiritual experience And for people who are planning on doing an extraction and putting them into a bunch of gummies or something,
1: right? Yeah, I didn't even know that was happening to be honest, because I don't
0: purchase mushrooms. You're you're in the lab, yeah, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know, people pay me to take their mushrooms and test them, so uh, that's actually fascinating, and and, you know, it, it makes sense actually. Um, because at least with mushrooms, we can touch on the cannabis stuff. I have a pretty strong opinion about that one, if uh, <laughs> if you want to hear it. But with mushrooms, um, I've tested stuff as low as 0.2 percent, all the way to 1.8 percent. So that's you know ninefold difference in potency. And you know if you go to a a, a, a bar. And you want to buy a Budweiser that's whatever, I don't know, 1, 1. 1.5, whatever the percent of a Budweiser is. You're going to pay a low amount of money. And then say there's like some 8.5% Belgian. You're probably going to pay more for that beer, right? Mm-hmm. Because alcohol is, like we know what it does. It has a linear effect. You drink more, you get more drunk, right? With mushroom alkaloids, you take more, you have a more interesting experience. This is like linear. The more you take, the higher you get. So it makes sense uh, in the mushroom world. And the only problem there is, are people going to be saying, oh, this is an ape when it's really like a way less potent mushroom. So, you know, ask for the lab tests if they're they're charging you based on on potency. (laughs) It's interesting (laughs)
0: how suddenly COAs are very relevant in mushrooms now, too. Yeah,
1: I've had people requesting them being made, yep. And, and, you know, it's interesting there are
0: arbitrage opportunities as well in this because um, if you are manufacturing, um, you may not necessarily choose an ape mushroom because they are at the, the you know, even though the potency is the highest, percent, um, it is also the, the highest price. And so right. uh, there would be good arguments to be made that you know you're looking for in a manufacturing environment you may be looking for a balance between um you know what mushroom has got the right balance of potency availability easiness to cultivate and then easiness to um you know uh, break down and use right um yeah you're 100% right so so you know most potent mushroom is not necessarily going to be best mushroom for for manufacturing and and these realizations are just coming to the industry and it's really interesting to watch them sort themselves out
1: yeah no i totally agree because if you're running a business it's all about efficiency like how much does it cost me to do this and how much do i get back and how much product can i make from it <clears throat> so I could very easily see a scenario where there's a one percent mushroom. It grows fast. It, it's really easy to grow, like you say. It's it, you know, it's maybe it grows twice as fast as a mushroom that's one point five percent. You know what I mean? So it would be better to grow the one percent. You get more biomass, you, and then your extraction efficiency is better with the slightly lower potent mushroom it's you know it's going to be everybody's process is going to have to be worked out uh, in that manner and that's what i would suggest people do is just don't go right off the bat and buy the most expensive potent mushroom you know get a couple different potency batches see how much it costs you to make your product and then you know make the correct decision
0: so um earlier in the in this uh second set we were talking about um uh, what part of the mushroom tends to be the most potent, and you told me about the 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 single uh, test case you have done where it was actually the junction of the stem to the cap that tested highest, which was a really right. interesting um, insight um, and then and then you know as we as we worked our way out of the question, you know I just mentioned that people argue quite a bit online about whether or not it's the cap or the Mm -hmm. stem and you said yeah there's a lot of variability and and we moved on but i want to come back to that because um uh you know you are the chemist and you are the person who is um you know doing these tests and granted most of your tests are on homogenized mushroom right so the the cap and the stem are all mixed together but um I, I'm thinking that you have something to say, even if it is there's no there's no hard and fast rule. I just want to get your thoughts on uh, stem versus cap potency generally across all psilocybe mushrooms.
1: <laughs> That's such a difficult question to answer. Um, you know, I would feel comfortable if I tested at least ten different. Mushrooms and looked at caps and stems and stuff, but I've only done it once. You know, like an N of 1 is a classic example of not enough data to make a decision. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there's... Over the years, people have looked at this in, in different academic groups or different parts of the world where they're allowed to do this work. And in general, the theme is that the caps are more potent. So I would probably lean to that being true. Uh, There's always exceptions to rules, like where we saw the guy have a more potent stem the other day. But in general, I would say the caps probably do have more alkaloid than the stem
0: so like if if there was a a rule of mushroom right on it that makes sense so so the rule of your rule of thumb would be capped but um but we know the variability between varieties is so significant that um you know don't put too much weight on the rule of thumb yeah very
1: good the best thing to do is just grind it all up in my opinion you know grind everything you have into a single powder and then it's going to be pretty consistent. Because I've had a another customer where he took like a pound and ground the whole thing up. And then he sampled it three different areas and called that A, B, and C. And then um, he did that for four months. Every month he did a sampling like A, B, C, right? And so he was looking for degradation over time and consistency of sampling. And... Uh, Found some really cool stuff like the 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 sampling and the consistency was highly cool. Like everything was really close. Like every test I did um, was right around six milligrams per gram, so point six percent. And uh, over time, he barely lost anything. So he had a really uh, good storage condition. So uh if you're looking for consistency homogenize
0: i think that the time when it comes up most of the time is when um there is a sales, <clears throat> a sale taking place because um you know so often um a purchaser whether or not it is you know, somebody who is trying to establish a business in Oregon or if it's in like the traditional neighborhood market, um, you know, there's always people want the caps because they look cool and they're kind mm-hmm. of like ceremonially dope. Um, mm-hmm. But but so often, you know, if, if, if you're the last person to buy mushrooms from your connection, um, there might be a lot of stems in the bottom. Yeah, and so you might end sure. up with you know mostly stems and a few caps. And, um, you know, the fact that we don't really know, um, does help the position of the seller, um... So that's when, it, I think that's when it usually comes up because anybody who's growing their own and it's not, it's not changing hands, right. we're just going to homogenize it. Like you said, so yeah. it, so it seems to be either, either in a, in a licensed market, uh, or, or about to be licensed market where there is a professional cultivator selling to a professional manufacturer, or when you're just getting mushrooms from your homie, you know? Right. right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's hit on uh, the storage of mushrooms next, because there is uh, there there's th- the answer to how best to store your mushrooms has really evolved over the years, and and um, very much so over the last three years. And so, you know, when when I was in college back in the early '90s, uh, we were told to um, you know to you know put it in a Ziploc and put it in the freezer. And, um, you know, that seemed to work, but I'm understanding now that there's a lot more people doing this research now and it's evolved. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the varieties of storing our mushrooms and, uh, how we can get the most longevity about them and, and, and probably in your answer, include a little bit about, uh, what causes mushrooms to degrade too.
1: Sure. Yeah. So remarkably, the best way to store mushrooms is in the dark, sealed in a bag Uh, at about 60 to 65 degrees and, you know, moderate humidity. Um, I've seen people uh, do freeze-thaw studies, like you said, in the freezer, put them in the refrigerator and store them just at room temperature, which would be a little bit warmer than 60, 65, you know, 70, 75 degrees. And pretty much the best uh, way to do it to to maintain alkaloid levels is uh, cool and in the dark, right? So um, do we want to, do we want to, do
0: we want to remove as much oxygen as possible? Yes. Like, like yeah, if we, that's if, where I was it, just going. Yeah. Oh, all right. So, so, so no, using like a, um, um, a vacuum sealer. That's or what or I'm trying like to get that. to. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, that's a good move then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the primary um, uh, issue is oxidation. So, If you take away the oxygen, then you're going to have way less opportunity for your mushrooms to degrade. Light, and heat, and oxygen are your enemies when it comes to this. So oxygen is the molecule that does the damage, but light and heat will speed it up. So, And the reason why the freezer doesn't work all that great is um, when you freeze thaw, um, biomass, whether it be tissue from an animal, plant, bacteria, fungi, you, when you freeze-thaw something, you cause some of the cells to lice or burst. And when you do that, you're going to expose the contents to oxygen. So that freeze-thaw in and out of the freezer, you're, every time you do it, you're going to burst some of the cells and then that's going to lead to the degradation. In the refrigerator, it's probably a moisture thing as well. Um, So moisture also could be a problem, so if you don't fully dry your mushroom, you put it in the fridge, the change in temperature is going to cause condensation. If the biomass absorbs any of that water, it will facilitate degradation as well. Whereas you keep them in a nice, consistent, dry, dark environment and it's cool, that seems to be the best way to preserve your mushroom potency over time.
0: so you suggested keeping them in a you know low sixties dark spot in a bag. Let's talk about that bag because um, you may have just kind of said that generally. Um, yeah. There's a difference of an opinion between um, a paper bag because some people say they need to breathe, but I think that's just the opposite because of the oxidation aspect. Correct. And then there's if the other people
1: dry. You don't need to breathe.
0: Right on. And then and then there's other people who talk about either using plastic or. Or, or because most plastic, uh, that's not a vacuum seal breeze. Some people are suggesting glass jars are the way to go. So, so what that is the vessel hurt, that yeah. you recommend?
1: Actually, if you want to be really anal about it and give yourself little to no, you know, the best opportunity to preserve your, your material, a glass jar that seals would be great. Yeah. And also, if you want to go even a step further, you can take an inert gas like nitrogen or argon, and blanket the vessel with that, and it pushes out all the oxygen. Mm -hmm. That's going a little far and beyond. Most home people aren't going to do that. But in the laboratory or in a business, you absolutely would want to do that because you'll get much longer shelf life if you purge the oxygen from the storage vessel.
0: Um, A way to do that cheap at home without um, adding the inert excuse me, without adding an inert gas is, um, you know, for these, these, um, these, you know, food fresh, uh, vacuum packs, right. um, yep. they, they've got these, uh, they got the mason jar, jar yep. lid, uh, adapters, Absolutely. which is what I use for my cannabis. And, Absolutely. and so, you know, I know, I know the stuff that I'm going to smoke soon. And then I know the stuff that I've just taken out of cure. That's probably yep. going to sit there until I get to it in two or three months. Right. Indeed. And so I put it in a large mouth mason jar. And I think I paid like 20 bucks for this adapter and it sucks yep. the, the, all of the air about, it out out of it and so i would think that that would also be a win for when i have mushrooms
1: 100 percent, and filling up the vessel with as much material as possible so there's no room for air Mm -hmm. right yep nope that's exactly uh the way you would do it if you're covering all your bases all right
0: so let's talk about time for degradation for um the you know the most common way of keeping mushrooms versus the, the the crazy way that we just described for like, you know, right. perfection. So, you know, most people, they're going to get their mushrooms in a Ziploc and then they're going to uh, uh, bring them home and let's let's not use freezer or refrigerator because we've already suggested that, that is, no one should be doing that. So, they want to keep it in a cool, dark place. So, so fine, it's good. Let's just put it under the bed. So, so it's dark, it's cool and it's in a ziplock bag and let's say that the mushrooms, when you receive them, let's say that, um, they were, they were harvested two weeks ago and, uh, they were dried properly and, um, you've got a very uh, short supply chain between the cultivator and, and, and me as the, as the mushroom enthusiast. All right. So, so in that, in, in that scenario, um, how quickly are my mushrooms under the bed going to degrade?
1: Are we talking about we have a nice cool, it's like a 60, 65 degrees? Yeah,
0: yeah. Let, let, let's say the temp, Let's say the temperature's right and it's dark.
1: Um, it's slow. I can give you a, an example that was not perfectly stored, but when I first started setting up uh, the lab here and doing my R&D and getting my methods started, I had a grower friend give me a nice bag of homogenized material so that I had a good amount of material to go back and check like so, I could work on consistency, right? Trying to make sure I was getting accurate results over time. Now I had that material, and I did all my initial development about last September, uh, or I mean, uh, sorry, last uh, De- December, January is when I did that work. <clears throat> and then I tested that stuff about a month ago, so it was about six months where it sat, um, probably closer to 70 degrees. It just in a plastic bag in my closet in my bedroom, right? Um, and it went from about 0.7% to about 0.56%. So let me really quick, what is that? That is a... Yeah, that's about 80%. So it's like a 20% loss in six months. And... Um, That's not too bad. No, that's actually way
0: better than I thought it was going to be.
1: It was elevated temperature. So if you keep it at 60 degrees, and it probably could have warmed up in there above that if it got warm, you know, like a couple few weeks. It's been warm recently, so it could have accelerated a little bit towards the end there. But that guy that I did the study with, you know, over four months, I think the the potency changed by like 2%. Mm Mm-hmm. So very little.
0: Yeah, very insignificant. The one of my friends who's a, a cultivator, he was very concerned about this last year during the Pacific Northwest heat dome when it got to like mm. one fourteen where he lives yes. in Eastern Washington, and um, you know he said you know other people he knew were going to get ice uh, in order to you know keep food or their pets or whatever cool, and um, you know he kind of you know how a, a double boiler you've got the the, the right. heat source on the bottom. And then a secondary thing. He, he was actually taking all his storage of dried mushrooms and putting them in a, in a, in a vacuum packed bag and then put it in a cooler that had all ice in the bottom, but then was sealed and then was on top. And, and yeah. that, that's how he's all like, he's like, I don't know what the science says about how quickly these are going to, um, Uh, less in potency he says but i want it to be zero and so he's like i may be sweating my ass off during the heat dome he says but my mushrooms won't and i thought that was a (laughs) pretty novel approach
1: that's a pretty clever approach yeah because what he did was smart because it allows him to put his mushrooms in the air above the cold Whereas if he would have like laid it directly on the ice, that super cold temperature probably would have caused some condensation to form inside there. So it's almost like he just made a little bit of air conditioning for his mushrooms, you know?
0: Yeah, and he, like he describes it as a double boiler, and like it's yep. weird. Like like I, even though it's a radically different. Application of that idea, I totally got what he meant. I'm like, oh, that's yeah, brilliant. absolutely,
1: yeah. He's letting the the ice at the bottom cool the chamber above, <clears throat> and it's not going to drop it down to the ice temperature, but it's going to keep it much cooler than ambient. So that's pretty pretty clever. Like I said, I like it. Right on. <laughs> uh, so so let's talk about um you know
0: since we're talking uh about mushroom analytics labs and you know primarily shaping fire talks about entheogens um and you know the evolution of mind and all um but there are um other mushrooms that people are all hot about now, um you know, generally put in a you know Chinese medic- medicinal groups like uh you know reishi and turkey tail and lion's mane and all and all of these other mushrooms that sometimes we use in cooperation with silosope mushrooms for for this ailment or that. Um uh, but also just just taking them for general health seems to be pretty appropriate um right. uh can you talk a little bit about the awarenesses that you have um, uh, testing these other mushrooms as well? I'm assuming that you 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 don't just test psilocybe, since you've talked about you know these other mushrooms and you have such intimate details with them. I'm assuming that there's people who are are formulating you know a lion's mane extract or something who's coming to you as well. And um, uh, you know what are you seeing as far as like variability in the potency of these mushrooms? Because you know unless they're really degraded, they all look the same, and and right. and and there's no real way for us as a consumer to know whether or not this particular lion's mane product is 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 as strong as this other one as a consumer,
1: right? Yeah, this is uh, the direction that we're going. Um, I'm in the process. I just got the cordycepin testing set up. However, the testing for a lot of these other mushrooms is a lot more complicated. Sometimes you can use the HPLC UV, but for most of these, you're going to need a mass spectrometer. And you know those are exceedingly expensive, over $100,000 for the right machine to do that testing. And I plan on going there. That's Um, I want to turn this business into a fully functional mushroom lab, not just a psychedelic lab. Um, And I'm actually, I've been approached by customers for things like mescaline, DMT, uh, ayahuasca, alkaloids. Like people are asking me about testing for all these things. So in the long run, I would like to be able to test for all of that. And the coolest thing about being in Oregon is with the decriminalization laws, we, we can test these as long as we have small amounts, you know? So it's, it's really cool. It actually gives you an advantage of being in Oregon that the other jurisdictions that only legalize psilocybin, they're not going to be able to touch.
0: Yeah, right on. That makes a lot of sense. And there's so much demand. I mean, like, um, oh, it's huge. you know, even though cannabis is not normalized yet, especially at the federal level, um, all these other entheogens that... We love and humans have been using forever. Um, they're coming in the door right behind cannabis in yep. the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, still going to be politically and you know um, legally messy for a while. But everybody everybody knows that the doors are open and,
1: and yeah, it's cracked open.
0: Pandora's box. The Snowballs
1: rolling downhill. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I want to ask you a question about fruiting body versus mycelium potency because this is probably one of the the most asked questions i 'm asked um, when talking to folks about um, uh, Chinese mushrooms and, and such um, you know there are people who fall on the the it 's okay to put mycelium in the caps um, in the way that uh, Stamets does for his products, and then there are people who believe that my mycelium based um, medicine is is um, You know snake oil, and it's actually only the fruiting bodies that should be used um, in kind of more of a you know real mushrooms uh, company kind of way. And um, you know someone's opinion really tends to fall on the fact of whether or not they what what their personal preference is. Um, But you're an analyst, and and so um, I wanted to hear what your thoughts are about um, whether or not we should be buying products that are made from a fruiting body or from mycelium when we're talking about non-psilocybe hmm. medicinal right. mushrooms.
1: Yeah, this is uh, super interesting, and uh, this is the point where opinions don't count. <laughs> Science counts. When you have data showing that there's molecules present in a certain part of the biomass, I don't care what someone's opinion is. If, if we know that lion's mane mycelium makes hersenone A— or or arinacine A, and the fruiting body doesn't, then you can go eating the fruiting body all day and you're not going to be getting the arinacines. You'll get the hercinones, which I I believe that's correct, that the arinacines are typically found in the mycelium and the hercinones in the fruit. If I have that switched, I apologize to everybody who knows that off the top of their head. But, it, you know, this is where the science rules. You have a good lab, a good scientist that that... Knows how to do all the stuff properly and has the proper controls and the proper identification of these molecules. And you can even start looking at this on a genetic level too. You could start looking for gene expression in the mycelium versus the fruiting body, and that's another layer of evidence that it's being produced, right? So you can find the gene in both the fruiting body and the mycelium because the gene, the DNA is consistent from doesn't matter the structure of the mushroom or the mycelium, but the turning on of that gene does matter. So there's ways that we can look at that. And then obviously, if the molecule is present in, so for example, we grow some lion's mane mycelium, and we have a boatload of biomass, and we pull that out, we extract it, and we identify hersonone A using mass spectrometry. It's there. Right? So, and then you go and you have the fruiting body of lion's mane, you grind that up, you do your analytics. Maybe the maybe arenacine isn't there. So, all I'm saying is there's different molecules made in mycelium and fruiting bodies for different species. And I've heard Paul Stamitz say this ad nauseum, but some people just don't want to listen. You know, if, if you don't want to follow the data and the science, that's your right, but it's not going to be correct in terms of what the contents are of those extractions or those biomasses i think it's also one of
0: the reasons why we need to make this information more available to people right because i I don't think that anybody well or or very few people are intentionally making decisions that are uh anti-science i think that most people just would never know where to find the data that you're talking about of people testing mycelium versus fruiting body this information is just hard to get
1: You need to be a scientist. You need to be able to go onto PubMed and not just find articles that fit what you're looking for, but be able to go into the article and read it from a critic's perspective. And, you know, because every time a scientist reads a scientific paper, you're putting that data to the test. You're saying – does the data that people have presented in this paper convince me of what they're trying to convince me? And a lot of times you'll have a scientist read a paper and be like, "I don't buy it. That data is not convincing. Look at what they did here. They're trying to they're changing their axes to get you to think there's a bigger effect. You know, there's a lot of subtle things scientists can do to trick a non-expert. So that's why it's dangerous for like your average person to go into PubMed, read a science paper and be like, oh, this is what this means. You know, it's like it's dangerous to do that because a lot of times, unfortunately, there are plenty of scientists out there that have an agenda and they're being paid by a company to get a certain answer and they'll do everything they can to support it. You know, look at the food industry for goodness gracious. I mean – well, we run into that in cannabis all the time because pe- people
0: are people are reading these tests, and even though, and, and certainly people are fudging with their graphs. But at the most basic level, you know, you really have to study whether or not they used and they used isolate or a whole plant resin in the patient study because yep. they they act differently. You can't just Indeed. say, you know oh we use 200 milligrams of cbd for this lupus patient because 200 milligrams of isolate is different than 200 milligrams of cbd in you know a whole plant resin oil yeah. yeah totally and there's there's reasons for there, there's there's reasons to use either right so so you know even though i'm a whole plant guy i'm not trying to diss the isolate you just have to know what your goal is and understand um what what was done in the study
1: a hundred percent, and there's a really good example for that too. You know, with example uh, CBD isolate versus a CBD extract. You know, children with Dravet syndrome, they need CBD isolate. You know, like the CBD is what actually helps the the seizures. You know, you don't need that other stuff. And plus, when you have all that other stuff in there, you might have to give the kid a little bit of THC, which you might not want to do to a five-year-old or something, you know. So there's absolutely applications for isolates versus crudes. You know, if you're going at something like a cancer or multiple sclerosis or some inflammatory thing, you don't want isolate because all those other things in there are going to have different effects and synergize and attack the broad Uh, symptoms that someone that has cancer, MS, or something like that as opposed to something very specific like a Dravet syndrome, which is a very specific kind of epilepsy So, and we transfer this to the mushroom world and I guarantee there's going to be ailments that, uh, well for example depression, psilocybin pure psilocybin isolated in the lab, even maybe synthesized and used as a uh, medicine for um, uh, depression that works a hundred percent. You know, it's like you don't need like a whole mushroom extract to pull that off. So, but there's definitely going to be something out there where we talked about earlier with the five or six different alkaloids we're finding in, in psilocybe that are you know measurable by UV uh, HPLC UV. Maybe a different proportion of those might have a better effect on PTSD than depression or a better effect on um, any of these other ailments that we're seeing psychedelic mushrooms being uh, effective on, can we get an even better result by changing the ratio of baocysteine to psilocin? You know, I'm I'm really like looking forward to
0: us um, you know, actually having the research behind these other uh components of the mushroom so that we can start even having this whole plant yeah. whole mushroom conversation. Because at this point, um Uh, You know anybody who says that they know is 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 you know blowing smoke because the the research isn't there. Like like (laughs) I I respect smart people's hunches, but we're only in the early days of of learning what's in the mushroom, and so to say that we know all the ramifications is just unrealistic.
1: Yeah, the hunches and hypotheses put us on a road to discovery, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, it's kind of like the same thing we're going through with cannabis, right? Uh, we all started with bro science, and now we have to uh, individually re- like replace what we think we know with new things um, as the as the research, you know, it gets established. So. Of course, yeah. Right on. Well, then let's wrap up here. So, George, thank you so much for uh, sharing your unique expertise. You know, um, with there only being three, you know, municipalities or not municipalities, but three three jurisdictions in the country that um, you know it's 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 legal ish to do what you do at the you know at the state level, but it you know it's still a Schedule One drug. Hundred um, percent. You you have got perspective and experience that is you know just exceedingly difficult to find. And and it took me a while to find you, and then yeah. it took you a while to be comfortable to you know um, you know be a little more public. So so I Indeed. appreciate you choosing to share your knowledge with us, and um, I wish you the best of luck on 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 this research and the um, and your applications, uh, however you use it. So thank you so much for being on Shaping Fire.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been super incredible, and it's the first time I've ever done anything like this, so uh, it, was, uh, it was great. I had some closing thoughts there for a second, but they may have just escaped me. Um, uh, other than – oh, yeah, I remember. So uh, real briefly, if I could just kind of give a, a brief history of, of my interest in this. You know, I started my psychedelic journey pretty young. I took LSD for the first time at 15 years old. And uh, got very heavily into it for a couple of years, which had an enormous impact on my life for the better, actually. Um, My my younger days were pretty wild. You know, I grew up a skateboarder uh, with a single parent that was uh, a business owner. So there was a lot of freedom, and I got into a lot of things young. And... uh, I was going down a track that probably wouldn't have been really beneficial to my longevity. And after experiencing psychedelics, mostly LSD and then a little bit of mushrooms towards the end there, by the time I was finishing high school, it completely changed me and put me on the academic track. You know, I I found some better people to be friends with. I got this amazing... A young lady that I started dating and we were together for 10 years and she helped steer me in the right direction. I ended up going to college, going to graduate school, getting a PhD and all this stuff. So I really strongly believe that the combination of uh, cannabis and psychedelics helped put me where I am today. And uh, so I've been involved with this counterculture for my whole life since I was about 15, and I'm 45 now. So for 30 years, I've been involved at the edge of counterculture as a skateboarder, as a you know cannabis person, and um, very, very uh, bullish on the ability of psychedelics to do positive things to people. And now we're finally here all these years later where we're given the tools. I happen to get the education, and now I can be put in the position to help a bunch of people, um, you know, overcome challenges that might provide them with a better life down the road. So that's kind of uh, why I'm here, how I got here, and I just really appreciate the opportunity to share uh, what I know about the uh, mushrooms and the analytics and the science behind it, and I'm really excited to see where all this goes in the future.
0: Well, thank you so much, George. So if you want to follow along with George uh, and his research, there is but one place to go, and that is the Flourish Labs uh, Instagram account. And so that's at Flourish, F-L-O-U-R-I-S-H, and then underscore labs, L-A-B-S, underscore Oregon. So if you happen to live in Oregon and you are looking for analytics, you can um, reach out to George that way. But if, like me, you've got uh, no need for analytics, but you're very interested in in keeping up with uh, the science and his research, there's the place to go. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.